Welcome to the Growth Investing Secret Podcast. This is Calvin Sito. And this is Jonathan Ang. The reason why we started this podcast is to help each household to have at least one full-time investor by investing to high-growth companies called Superstocks. We didn't come from well-to-do backgrounds and after many years of investing, we finally became full-time investors before the age of 30. This was only possible with growth investing. Our mission is to help both beginner and experienced investors get better investment returns. Don't settle for less. It is very possible that you can achieve out-of-the-world results and we have proven that it is possible through the returns of our community. So now, let's be committed to learn, dive in and get started on today's episode. All content from participants shall not be treated as professional advice or recommendation to buy or sell any position in any financial-related instruments. The content is made available for educational purpose only. We may buy any securities mentioned and we may stand to benefit financially if they rise in value. You should seek independent financial and legal advice before making any financial decisions. Hey everyone, it's Calvin here and I'm your host for today. Welcome everyone to our podcast series. If you love our podcast, please follow or subscribe to our podcast. Our guest today is my amazing friend and he's one of the most generous investors I've ever known. He coaches people out of his own time while juggling his work and he donates frequently to a lot of worthy causes as well. It is someone often who adds a lot of differentiated value even for my own investing process as well. So welcome Dekai, you know, it's very hard to get you on this podcast and I'm very glad that we finally made it happen. You are such an inspiration to everyone, especially to all the new investors because you have made investing so relatable and I do not know of anyone else who talk about stocks like you. Everywhere you go, you are always talking about stocks and how you are able to relate life philosophy uh, back to investing as well. So it's almost like you breathe and you live investing. So Tika, I just want to start off with asking you this question. How long have you been investing and what is something about investing that intrigues you so much that keeps you going for so long? Hey, hi, Kevin. Thanks for doing this podcast. So really happy to do my first podcast with you. And um, started to purchase my first stock when I wanted to leave the company that was back in uh, 2007. So it was about, you know, 10 years of investing, being lucky by just reading some books about value investing. And then I thought I knew all of it, right? So started investing in company that is uh, Medicare. Lucky that uh, I got it when it was in crisis in 2009 and uh, made my first bucket of gold in uh, a gambling company in Singapore, uh, Resort World. Then many years, my portfolio did not really grow much and stagnant till like uh, 2017. It was when uh, I started to look at this company called AEM. That was my first uh, really multi-bagger. And also I invested in NVIDIA Cornings back then in 2010. Okay, so I have, I've seen that, you know, you have mentioned some names that happens to be from the semiconductor industry, AEM, NVIDIA. Is it by chance or, you know, what was your investing process and how do you actually select companies into your portfolio? Yeah, back then when I looked at the AEM, it was really like, uh, you know, I, I, I myself, I come from Penang and there's a lot of Intel plants down there. And uh, when we look at the numbers, it was uh, really amazing when AEM was in 2017, uh, February, if I recall correctly. So the whole market uh, cap is about uh, $40 million. And after doing my research with my cousins and uh, we come to a conclusion that uh, you should be able to do a profit of about 40 million in the coming 12 months. So that, that was about the one X uh, forward PE. So how did we come to a conclusion on that is that uh, the first machine was tested that is enabling 30 chips to be tested at the same time compared to the old machines that they're using, it's only one test per 
chips at any time. So this product is a five-year R&D outcome. So we knew that it will not be just one machine. It was surely that uh, you know Intel wants to have a lot of it, and they want to roll it out so that they can save more costs. And uh, so that that was when we start to do our scatterbot and you know go to the uh, fabrication site, start chit chatting with the security officer, and then we found out that uh, you know there has been a lot of overtime work lately. That's when we started to get more interested in uh, loading it up more. It, it, it was the, my first multi-bagger and uh, I'm quite happy for that. Although I didn't write all the way to the 10X, but uh, it was a good experience to, uh, for me as a start to really see how rewarding it is that if you are able to find something that is truly undervalued and not noticed by the majority of the analysts. So using your experience analyzing uh, AEM and some of the other companies that have given you a lot of returns, when you look at those multi-baggers, what are some common characteristics that you see in them? Is it because um, they are unknown or is it because they, they have experienced high uh, earnings growth? Uh, what are some common characteristics that you see in those multi-baggers? See, I think the most important thing is the ability to grow their revenue. And uh, if you're looking at a uh, very short period of time that's uh, enabling to achieve the multi-baggers, like this case of uh, AEM, and uh, there's other cases as well that uh, recently we come across, which is like uh, Pointera and uh, you know, Emrys was one of them, but I, I only knew it quite late. But what I'm trying to say here is that uh, so long as the company has the proven product and ability to scale and uh, control their cost very well, especially those that is in a small market cap, like uh, you know, below 50 million or below 100 million, so the absolute value to scale is much easier in comparison to companies that has already 500 million revenue and then you expect them to be 10 times the revenue, then you will be like, you know, 5B that you need to achieve compared to just like uh, 500 million from uh, 50 million, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's this saying that a lot of investors look at penny stocks, you know, companies that have below 300 million in market cap, they deem those companies as very risky companies. But from your point of view, it seemed like this is where you'll find a lot of enjoyment researching. And how do you actually differentiate whether those companies have a real product? How do you differentiate whether they are able to scale their revenues uh, rapidly? See, when you have a really solid product, you can really see it. You know, when, when you study it, you look through it, and then you find that, oh, wow, this, this product is really interesting. And then on top of that, you look at the, the amount of work they have put in, their R&D years has been pour in and nothing has happened and you know recently maybe there has some pivoting point on some way of executing it better and especially when you have founders that has been in the game for a very long time and they're still insisting continuing on it but not saying that all these cases will be the same and you know a lot of founders have been continuing for many many years but it still doesn't bear fruits but but what, what I'm trying to say here is that it, it, sometimes it just gives you the feel, you know, when, when you see that, okay, we, I have this right product, I have this right team, the, the team is scaling and um, balance sheet is uh, improving, then slowly you can see that, okay, you know, the light is likely at the end of the tunnel already, so you can see something really turning around. So because of that, right, would you say that most of the companies you are buying today is loss making and how do you know whether they will hit to a path of profitability? Do you look at customer's validation? You know, what, what else do you look 
to ascertain that it could be a loss-making company right now, but eventually it will do well over time? I think the customer focus is very important. So um, the, the product itself must be able to solve the pain point of the customer. And then um, if they are really solving the real issue for the customer, you can see from the customer feedbacks that uh, uh, this example for PAR, they have a lot of uh, testimonial that is being done uh, by their customers, like five guys and uh, the rest of them, right? So from, from those feedback, you get a lot of insights um, you know, how the product has helped them to save costs, save time, and uh, enable them to scale. These are the way we're trying to understand um, how a company or a product that really can be a multi-bagger in your investment. Management well, is still the key, yeah. So management is the one that actually sets the vision, you know, brings people together and really execute on it. So, you know, there was this famous saying from Charlie Munger, right? That goes like this, fish where the fishes are, right? So we drive the idea that not all business models uh, can give investors the high returns that they want. There are some industries that perform really well. There are some industries that actually maybe investors should avoid totally. And I know that you run a group whereby you guide people on to say, you know, what are some models to avoid? Some are, what some of the business models that they should embrace? Uh, so could you share with us, your preference for some industries and what are some industries that you will never invest in them? Yeah, this is very true because uh, some of the businesses uh, that is uh, available now, right, is it, meant for community service. Let's say like airlines, you know, they are there to provide a service for people to travel, like uh, bus services, transportation. It, it, it's not a great business for us to get multi-baggers, but it, it is a need for it to be there. So when we want to invest, we want to invest in the companies that uh, really have the solid products and uh, they are in a game-changing situation where this product will change or disrupt the whole uh, industry. So for example, we have this uh, motto company that recently that uh, we have looked into. They are enabling the motto to reduce the energy consumption and uh, making it enable to have two talkers. So that reduce the uh, gearbox and reduce uh, another motor in the EV and at the same time delivering performance. So th these are cost savings and um, real, real changing game changer to the EV industry. So the way I look at it is that we, we need to look at the uh, bigger pond uh, as in the uh, EV industry is ever growing now and uh, the tailwind is so huge. Um, then we need to select the, the best of it uh, that we can look into for this EV industry. It doesn't mean that we need to buy Tesla when everyone is buying Tesla, right? So, uh, another example would be a company called uh, Pointera, which is doing the 3D um, data storage and data analytics and uh, data processing. So uh, we, we all know that 3D scanning is now very, very important in a way to have the model in place so that uh, the, the autonomous driving can be uh, fully utilized properly so that minimize the accidents and etc. So yeah, so th th these are the kind of, uh, you know, tailwind market that we have uh, behind us that you know, even the company doesn't really expand or approach to the client. The client will automatically come to them to get more of their products. So it makes their scale much more easier. So if I'm getting it correctly, your aim is really choosing the best players in growing addressable markets, uh, secular trends, 
and businesses that ultimately add a lot of value to its end customers. So that sounds really great. I just want to ask you a little bit like, um, you know, rewind back just now we talk about how important management teams are. I know you are reading and you're spending a lot of time on understanding management teams. You also talk about this book called The Intelligent Fanatics at a great length. So from there, I know that you actually have in mind a, a list of key qualities that you look for in your CEOs before you invest in their companies. So could you share with us uh, what are those qualities and uh, why are they so important in your mind? Yeah, it's really a great book that uh, I suggest everyone to uh, read and uh, please uh, buy all the three, you know, the orange book, the blue one and the green one. The, the most critical thing that I look for is the integrity in the founders. So they, they must have the integrity to run the company for the shareholder, right? And uh, with a win-win-win uh, characteristics in the way they approach stuff, right? So they need to be able to win for their client, right? Win for their suppliers and win for themselves. Uh, without this kind of a win-win situation, win-lose situation will not last for long. So we don't want that to be partnered with. And um, cost-conscious, right? So they, they must be very, very driven to cut costs and that, that is how you drive the gross margin further and then you're able to utilize a very less capital to make the most out of it. So those characteristics is very important for the founders. And the other thing is that, you know, sometimes you look for bad experience that those founders that have their bond through, it's like their rags to riches, you know, it started very poor and then uh, had to go through all the pains and you know, society wasn't being fair to them. <laughs> Those kind of characteristic uh, or experience that they have gone through really helps to mold their mindset and really sees integrity. You know, they want to make a change and they have a clear vision, right? So th those founders clearly, they, they, they suffered and um, or, or they have really bad experience in their life, early lifetime. So that, that's why uh, they, they, they want to make a, a real change to the world. So... Those are the characteristics uh, and the key points that I normally look at. And you know, their the ability to scale. So if, if, when, when they started small and they have proven themselves in the past record, see some companies, they, they, they are not the, the first time they are doing it, right? So they have done for previous few companies and this may be the third or the fourth one. And uh, you, you already know these, these CEOs, these founders, they are able to deliver track records. And I mean, deliver results based on their track record. So th those are the things that uh, I'm, I'm really uh, emphasizing on before I really look into much more details. That's a lot of good information down there. You know, I believe it will give all listeners a kind of framework to observe and to analyze management teams as well. So just now we talk a little bit about some of your wins. We talk a little bit about the management teams. So, you know, for a lot of investors, sometimes they may understand the same name. They may have the same amount of understanding as, as you do or as anyone else. But when it comes to portfolio results, it can be quite different, you know, although they're analyzing the same company. So I just want to find out from you in terms of portfolio allocation, you know, how are you sizing up your position? Is it a concentrated one or is it a diversified portfolio? Um, you know, you can talk about like first, you, when you first started, how it was like, and over time, did it became a, a more concentrated one? or more diversified one. And if you are concentrated portfolio, uh, where do you find your margin of safety? Yeah, see, it, it all depends on your capital. So when I first started, my capital was very small. It's less than, you know, everyone start from small. 
especially you save your money and then you start investing using your own money, right? Um, so when you started, when I started small, um, earlier days in uh, 2007, 2008, you know, th th those time, um, you, you only have a few companies that you invested in and these few companies, maybe just a few thousand dollars here and there. Then what, what happens is that when you've got your first bucket of gold, you know, you hit the jackpot the first time, like what I happened to did in the uh, resort world in Singapore. I'm not saying it's a good company to buy at this moment of time, but what I'm trying to say here is that once you get the amount of capital, let's say in a five-figure range or six-figure range, then you will start to be a bit more conscious because uh, you, you don't want to put everything in and then you're scared of losing everything in one go because at that point of time for myself, I don't have the skills and the knowledge to have that kind of conviction because you know, I, I'm, I'm still looking at the half-cooked uh, uh, <laughs> Warren Buffett way, which is the, you know, the earnings and, you know, we haven't even looked at the reinvesting, sales and marketing and things like that back then. So in about 2010, 2012, uh, if you ask me, would I put a, uh, let's say, six-figure into a single position? I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. So I, I won't have the... I can't sleep well at night if I put a six-figure in, in one position back then. Then as time passed and, uh, you know, after the AEM experience in 2017, and then I say, oh man, how I wish I put much more into it, right? But, you know, you, you won't be able to have the same result if, even if you put more into it because you, you may have uh, exited the position much earlier uh, when it was just double up, right? So because the, the absolute amount become much bigger. And then, and then it evolved to something like, you know, okay, let's do three, four position and um, that, that's it, right? And what happened is that when you do three, four position and you have a fairly big portfolio, any one fluctuation, you will have some uh, big correction or big gains on it, of course, as well, right? So it just works well for yourself if you think that, you're okay, you're, you're fine with three, four position, but what nowadays I'm doing is that uh, I'm doing more like uh, six to eight positions my core position. At, at the moment, I have six core position that is, um, I know, 80% of my portfolio. The rest um, is like a couple, one, two percent um, research type of uh, position. And uh, I, I do sell puts as well, just to uh, generate some income, cash flow. You know, it's like a business that I own that keep on giving me the uh, cash flow to invest in the company that I want to own more position. Instead of selling more of the, 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 the other company to buy another company, so uh, with this selling put options, uh, of course, you need to know the valuation where you're selling at, and you're able to generate some income to keep adding on to your position. So I guess it works well for me now, uh, six to eight position as its core position and the rest are smaller positions. Uh, you can say like a cash hedge as well. So you don't have to hold the cash, but then you don't have to put everything into your same uh, uh, large core position. So you, you kind of park like uh, a thousand share here and there on those positions that you think it will do well, but it, it, it is not your core position. And uh, you can... Um, you know, say let's say there's a market drawdown sometime, then you can liquidate some of the smaller position and add on to your most high conviction position. How do you ever feel comfortable when a company occupies 20, 30, 40% of your portfolio? You know, um, because that's not something a lot of people are very comfortable about. So if you could share with us, what's the biggest weightage in for a company in your portfolio currently? And, and how do you feel comfortable 
having that that weightage inside. Yeah, see, um, it, it's just an example, okay? So, um, I mean, last year, July, we, we stumbled into this company called Pointera, right? It was like five cents in, in within two weeks, then it went to double and 11 cents, and people were saying that, okay, it's already doubled, now what more it can go? And uh, I, I keep adding on after I've uh, studied a bit here and there on the company, and I found it that it's very interesting, and it's in the tipping point. Um, I keep adding on the position. So I add on in um, all the way from 11 to 17 cents, and then I stop. And uh, recently, the uh, company improved the business fundamentals. And so I keep adding on when it was 50 cents range. So just one analogy that I want to uh, explain to everyone is that, uh, you know, when the company is uh, performing really well, it shows that the CEO and the team is delivering great results right, that you have already partnered with, right? So those partners has been working very hard and delivering great results. The market is uh, appreciating the results. So that's why the share price went up. And then on the other hand, it just purely for yourself because your position has went up so high, the market doesn't know you own so much of a position, right? So um, then you, you're trying to say that I don't want to work with this CEO anymore. But hey, hang on, didn't the CEO just deliver a great result that the share price is appreciated, but just because of yourself that, uh, you know, the position has become so significant and then you don't want to work with the, the best CEO that has delivered the best result. That, that's why your position becomes so big in that position. So you want to cut the relationship purely because of that. So I, I don't think that is the right thinking and a mental, mental model. So I still believe to uh, keep your winners. And of course, when there is a um, clear run up that is way over the valuation, you can consider to trim here and there and add on to a, a saver position if you don't feel comfortable on it. But for me so far, I haven't trimmed my positions on uh, those couple of big ones. Um, yeah, so. So if I'm getting you correctly, it's like if a company initially it could be a 20% weightage in your in your portfolio, but it grew all the way to like 30, 40% because the stock had doubled, you know, it actually earned the way that it earned the right to be a 40% position because of the performance. And uh, what most investors do is that once the company occupy a big weightage, they may trim it back down. Uh, but that, uh, in, in your point of view, that may not be good because that's self-sabotaging, right? Because uh, it's like a management have done well and they are being uh, they are being punished for 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 doing well. So for you, ideally, you you keep it as long as they are executing it. Am I right to say that? Yeah. See, if you look at this thing called all time high, right? So everyone was so uh, concerned about all time high. You know, the, the stock hit all time high. You know, fifty five cent, eleven cent, and then twenty cent all time high, and then forty cent all time high. You know. People were expecting that you know it, it's so high, and then how high it can go anywhere further, right? So you, you, I think most investor didn't realize is that uh, you know the, the great stocks, right? The great companies always perform and deliver results. So when they deliver results, and uh, the share price has to be all time high, D just don't uh, trim your position because of some uh, share price appreciated. Based on the fundamental, look back the fundamental, is that quarter result uh, coming out has uh, improved their fundamental further. Mode has expanded, 
revenue grew, management reinvesting in R&D. So those are the things that is matter much more than just purely on the share price. I don't think it's a good way to just trim the position when it goes to double or triple. So just focus on the fundamental. If the fundamental is still there and the PEM is still huge, you know, it's still quite small company in the, especially in the few hundred million and you already run up like five, six baggers. It's still a long way to go to billions of dollars with market cap. Then those are the ones that uh, you will consider um, to, to let it run a little a little more, right? So if this is already like ten hundred billion dollars company, you expect to ten bagger, then you'll be a trillion dollars. So then you gotta ask yourself, you know, how many trillion dollars company around in the world? So your your, your odds are against you now although the product is very very good and you know the amount of capital to require to run the company all the way to a trillion dollar is different than the company that you know you from a few hundred million to a few billion dollars i think what you say really makes sense uh it's really using math as a context and knowing that the laws of the large numbers you just cannot grow into infinity especially when right now you're already a big company with huge revenues so, you know, we talk a lot about our wins, uh, NVIDIA, AM, uh, Pontera, even for Par Technology. So, we, you know, we talk a lot about um, a lot of wins uh, so far. So I'm just thinking about changing the format a little bit. You know, um, this might uh, cause us to, uh, cause you to rethink some of the painful lessons. But, you know, could you share with us what are some of your biggest investing challenges or, or mistakes so that, you know, for the listeners, uh, they can learn uh, from you. I know one of them is not to sell your winners early, but what are some uh, uh, learning pointers that you had over the years? Yeah, I think the couple of mistakes that uh, I, I made, uh, luckily wasn't that damaging. Um, you see, um, a few of them is those companies that is uh, doing uh, services to uh, oil and gas company doing their maintenance here and there. So the CEO owned a large stake, skin in the game, everything well, you know, able to expand and grow their revenue. But what happens is that I didn't look into in-depth enough in terms of, uh, you know, the gross margin. Are they improving their gross margin back then? So that was, in, I don't know, 2016, 17 time range. And um, although they are growing their revenue, but the gross margin didn't increase. Right, and uh, they are pouring into more capital just to generate more revenue. So, in terms of efficiency-wise, you don't have that uh, working capital efficiency. So, um, that that is one mistake. And uh, the other big one is confirmation bias. Right. So, I want to warn everyone that you know, uh, the more you look into the company, it doesn't mean you know much more in the company. You know, the more time you spend, the more you fall in love, and then the more you 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 think that you are right. Right. So. I'm so confirmation biased back then that uh, in one of the company that is doing the furniture, right? So um, I, I went to the shop, I look at the stuff and you know, even there's no customer inside that I thought that, you know, maybe this is not the right timing to come in and, you know, you're trying to get, get yourself some excuses here and there. But looking back then from now is that, you know, what a silly mistake, man. <laughs> but I, I think everyone needs to go through this part of the life right if everything is smooth sailing and then from day one you get everything right yeah so i always say that uh, you know you want to make mistake when your capital is small 
right? You, you don't want to make a mistake when your capital hit the million range and then, you know, the moment you lost, you lost everything. So then it's a real painful experience and, you know, to start all over again, you may not have the time. You're not young anymore, right? So I still think it's good to uh, pay and learn the lesson. Uh, of course, you, 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 you can avoid it if you're smart enough to really understand what to what is the reason behind that mistake and you know everyone start to dig into it so that that's why i'm sharing to most of the people uh, friends and you know those uh, people interested in investing is that you know these are my mistakes and please don't do that again and these are different business models that uh, yeah they are good businesses i'm not saying they are not good businesses but will that business able to give you the multi-bagger that you're looking at, right? You, you, you only want to invest in the business that able to generate the highest return with the best product. You want to partner with the best CEO, right? So, so those are the lessons that uh, I'm trying to share with uh, most of my friends and you know, investing uh, friends that don't make the same mistake, right? So you, you can invest in McDonald's, but maybe not now, you know, maybe your capital reach a few hundred million, then, you know, every 10% is 10 million, then if 10 million works well for you every year, then that's fine. But when your capital is very small, you want to buy McDonald's, Starbucks. See, again, it's not a bad company, okay? So those are all good company, but you expect to get a high return out of this company? No way. So, <laughs> If you want McDonald's to double or triple their revenue, you gotta get another Mother Earth, right? So that, that's what I always say to my friends that they're already like 30,000 store, if I got it right, for McDonald's, right? You expect them to double the 30,000 store, right? So it, it's going to be a bit difficult. Of course, they can raise their price and improve their margin and improve their uh, net profit. So, but you, you don't want the hard way, right? You want the one foot bar that uh, Warren has been saying. So. You choose those companies that can grow easier in terms of uh, absolute value, but the kick is that uh, the trick is that you need to really know uh, and uh, understand the the CEO, their missions, and the products and their TAM. Then you have more confidence in uh, investing in these uh, smaller wins. I mean, big wins, but small companies. You know, the kind of way you explain things, you know, it was very insightful. And I think you you made it um, sound like common sense for a lot of investors. Really enjoyed the way um, you give your explanations. So I just want to um, share with you what I've learned from your sharing. You know, it's, I guess it's really about accumulating more experiences. You know, when we're young, do not worry because we still have a job anyway. We still can earn our, uh, build our savings back again. But uh, when our portfolio grows bigger, uh, we should not make the same mistakes because with a bigger portfolio, it will be more uh, painful, right? So I just want to move on to the next question. Uh, previously, when I was working in a boutique fund, uh, my chief investment officer once told me, an investor, um, you know, most investors can analyze companies quite well, but to be an even better investor, you, you know, you must be able to source for good investment ideas. Uh, from everywhere, you know. So we have people who can analyze companies, but we have people who can analyze companies and also source for good investment ideas. So uh, I'm pretty sure that, you know, you work in the space of uh, small companies, investing in smaller companies. Uh, that may not be well covered by a, a lot of um, analysts. Uh, there may not be any bookish reports at all. 
So for you, how do you find these opportunities that, that provide you all these high returns and um, how has the process changed from the past? Maybe in the past, were you uh, screening for companies? Now maybe you build a network of investors who kind of feed you with uh, those ideas. So, so how has the process changed for you? Yeah, see, when, as your network grew, right, you, you have more ideas flowing in naturally. You know, when, when you are surrounding yourself with all the uh, investment uh, community, then, you know, every now and then you get one idea or two. So um, in, in my earlier years, uh, what I did was uh, I used to screen in Guru Focus and I screen in Australia, screen in US and, you know, all the criteria, ROE and, you know, back then still using the same mental model or the early stage mental model of uh, value investing. So that, 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 that didn't really turn out well because those are screenable companies. So... Uh, after a while, I realized that uh, you know those companies that can really perform and give you a, a real multi-bagger is those companies that you, you don't get to screen it out easily. So the moment you screen it out easily from numbers, I mean quantitative, then uh, a lot of analysts can do that. So when everyone is doing that, you your result will be uh, you know you, you can't get that uh, multi-bagger that you are looking at. So nowadays, my ideas. Uh, uh, mostly from uh, Twitter, right? So especially those uh, proven gurus that uh, they have consistently delivering the, the results, you know? So uh, one way is that uh, once you find those gurus, make sure you put a uh, ring bell on it. <laughs> so whenever they tweet, uh, you, you get the first-hand information that, you know, th these are the companies that they're looking at. And... Um, yeah, most of the time it turned out well because those are people that uh, has already uh, did their homework. And then uh, on top of that, uh, you are just uh, uh, using the, the filter that they have done through and you research on top of that. So to, to me, it, it gave me some uh, a kind of a safety net to fall back in case, uh, you know, yeah, but you still need to do your own research. I'm not saying you, you, you don't have to, but at least you know that, okay, this guy that has done so many uh, multi-baggers and you know, returns, and uh, he's looking into this company, so there must be something into it that uh, you know, get his interest in it. Well, that sounds great. So it's really a collaborative effort where you work together with other investors, you build your network so that um, you, know, you can screen for those stocks that are loss-making, but could be um, to the path to profitability, maybe they are loss making for, for other reasons, not because the business model is, is bad, but they are reinvesting in their uh, operations. So I just want to like switch things up a little bit as well. So we talk a lot about stocks as well, uh, but before you were investing in stocks, did you invest in anything else like uh, properties, uh, FX, foreign exchange, private equity? So how was the experience? You know, what, 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 would you, what do you think about the risk to uh, reward ratio um, and, uh, you know, it seems like now you are focusing uh, all your time on equities as well. So, so what are your thoughts about all the different kind of uh, investments uh, as compared to uh, investing in uh, equities? Yeah, see, um, earlier days, I used to uh, invest in properties as well. So I did some, uh, set up the companies and uh, you know, get a few friends to invest together. It turned out really well. Uh, I'm lucky to run in much earlier when the Price to uh, price per square foot was very low for those commercial units. So, um, I'm I'm not saying you're able to do that again now. Uh, it's quite difficult to do that now, 
and the returns uh, from that way of investing uh, will not match uh, what we can get from these multi-baggers in a small company that has a proven CEO and products. So I, I, I stopped investing in properties totally. Uh, I liquidated uh, uh, the properties that I had and um, only holding on those that um, for myself, more for my parents, those are the properties that I'm having. And uh, my way of thinking is something like this, right? So if, if, if you're buying a properties at 1 million and then you know, you're lucky enough, the market appreciate, and then you're selling at 2 million, okay? So the guy that is buying from you is basically holding the bag at uh, 2 million. So th that is only on the investing part, right? If you're purely buying properties for investing. So what we are really doing here is that uh, the other guy who is buying it at two million, you need to work much harder to repay the loan, and you know it's not really good for the society. So uh, it, to the extreme cases, right? So you can look at the uh, property conditions in uh, you know the, the the middle class that is in Hong Kong and all these uh, big cities, right? So they can't even afford to stay properly in, in a house that uh, is very small. So it's really sad to see all these things happening. And uh, you know, people are still making a lot of money from properties in Hong Kong. Um, other than that, uh, like foreign exchange, you know, so uh, I, I, I don't do that. So Forex, so forget about it. So, but maybe I'm, I, I can't understand the economics behind it. Uh, you know, it's too macro for me. You know, a lot of uh, things uh, got to tie in together, uh, too many variables. So I, I still would like to focus on just single company, able to understand the product. AEM is a good example. Only one product, nothing will go wrong. In comparison, even for conglomerate uh, companies, right? So one business segment may do well, one may not, and the other one may be just, uh, you know, performing as usual. but. Uh, it doesn't give you the result or the certainty uh, when you're investing in a small company and it is just a single or two products that you clearly know that both of the product or the, all the product will do well. But when you're investing in a conglomerate, like uh, for example, in Singapore, we have this company called Capital, right? They're into everywhere. They're into oil and gas, they're into real estate, they're into, you name it, they're everywhere. So you, you can't have a certainty uh, in every year that you know the result come up will be well because you don't know all the industry will do well so so my, my take is that uh, you know don't do properties don't do foreign exchange you know private equity I still don't have enough uh, capital to do that <laughs> maybe I didn't get the exposure myself yet so once uh, I get the exposure maybe I'll look into that but uh, until now I think it's still stocks and uh, stocks that businesses that is easy to understand and uh, businesses that uh, you know the product well and you can have a certainty that you will do well uh, rather than those uh, conglomerate uh, company that is so big that you can't even know what will drive the result right yeah actually i i agree with you because if you look at a property it, it cannot rise above a country's gdp otherwise it might not be sustainable FX is as well, I think there's a lot of variables. And I look at the companies as very productive assets that could actually grow uh, really, really well. So my, my thoughts are actually the same as you. 
Um, so I so also remember that you did mention to us that you feel that companies' um, stocks, you know, could be really an important uh, pillar or building blocks of of uh, building a generational wealth. And that's a very interesting concept, you know, like a lot of people, when they talk about building generational wealth, um, they will not think of stocks as a thing. You know, they talk about property. Uh, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's the most uh, uh, common thing that most people think of when it comes to building generational wealth because a lot of people still look at stocks as a form of gamble. So, you know, how did the idea come about? You know, how, how did you change your views about, about stocks being part of the generational wealth? Uh, because it's not a common thinking out there that most people have. Yeah, see, uh, the, the, the olden days when my grandfather or my father's generation is that they don't have access to this stock market. You know, maybe they have, it's only localized in their own country, right? And the experience may not turn up well, right? So that kind of uh, set our mindset in, in the early days that, you know, stock may not work out well. What I'm trying to say here is that uh, people think stock as stock which is one single company or single, you know, it's not a single company, it's an instrument. Stock is an instrument itself that they are basically using that instrument to own uh, different type of businesses, okay? In Chinese olden years, uh, they are saying that, you know, the, the wealth of a, a wealthy family won't last for the three generations, right? So that that, that is a myth in a way that, uh, how to say it is, olden days, they don't, they don't have this kind of uh, many source of income, right? So in, in China or, or in Malaysia back then is that when you generate a uh, source of income from your shop houses, for farming, from you name it, right? So it's only a single source of income. So that's why it doesn't last for multi-generation. So if you're looking at uh, owning asset that can go multi-generation. So to, to me, it's fairly simple. You want to have your own time. You don't want to, you know, fully uh, dive into entrepreneur. Of course, if you have the energy and the product and the uh, network to do that, go ahead and do it. But uh, you know, what, what I'm trying to say here is that stock itself is an instrument. So don't look at stock as an, uh, uh, you know, when stock collapses, everything collapses. No, it, it doesn't work that way. Um, behind the stocks are all solid companies that uh, is delivering uh, value to their customer. They're creating value, solving the pain point to the customer. And, and you're not owning, I mean, for now, at least I, I, I start to uh, have it in few uh, industry that is uh, really in the disruption phase, um, like uh, EV phase uh, disruption companies and, um, you know, cell engine therapy point of sales, right, 3D scanning. Those are the company, the e-commerce. So you have five, six or, or eight of them. And uh, these are the companies that you have really done your research. You know the founders really well. You know the products really well. You know the TAM really well. You can see how you can scale all the way to much bigger company like 10X the current size. Yeah, so you, you, you shouldn't be worried in a way that, uh, you know, stock is just one stock, but uh, it's actually an asset uh, accumulated of uh, different industries that each of the companies are doing very well and growing. Uh, so you, you shouldn't worry much on uh, this uh, 
stock as in one that uh, will collapse, right? So it is still better than owning gold. You know, one kilo you buy now and 10 years later, you'll still be one kilos, right? So the, the gold itself doesn't grow. You know, that's just a very useful sharing. So that also kind of tells us that, you know, we, we really got to spend a lot of time understanding uh, good companies, uh, be a sharpshooter, you know, really choose those companies that really could outperform a lot. Because these days we see that a lot of corporate life cycle, a lifespan of a business is shrinking and only those outstanding ones can grow for many, many years to come. So, you know, you talk about the generation well, so we want to kind of transit over the next question, you know. So I, I know you have your children uh, right now and have you ever thought about teaching them the importance of investing or maybe teaching them what are the companies that you have in your portfolio so they understand it so um, they can also pick up the skill sets uh, from you. Um, have you ever considered teaching them investing or, 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 yeah. or will you teach them investing one day? Definitely, definitely. And, uh, I'm already teaching my daughter on uh, e-commerce stuff and then when I bring her to grocery stores, I teach her on this company called Seng Xiong in Singapore. It's the third largest grocery store in Singapore. So, so you need to generate their interest and uh, you know, explaining to them the logic behind it uh, by owning a great business, by owning the business that uh, you're spending money at and you understand the products. So it is just that simple. So my daughter used to sing Shopee song to me like, uh, you know, one year ago, how I wish I have loaded much more one year ago when she started singing Shopee song, right? So that's, that's a clear <laughs> indication that Shopee will do well. Um, by the way, my daughter is uh, nine years old, back then was eight years old. So if an eight years old can start singing Shopee song, and uh, keep asking the dad to go into Shopee and start buying stuff. So you know this company is really doing amazing work. Yeah, I think you, all, all kids and um, they, they, they should start uh, learn the financial literacy, um, how to invest and you know how to evaluate companies. So of course they need to enjoy their kids' uh, life. You know, it's just you know when you have some chance and you know suddenly they ask some question related to it, then you use that opportunity to explain to them more, but uh, try not to force it through. They won't be able to appreciate it as much as, uh, you know, kind of opportunities way. When things happen, it happens. And, you know, if they ask something that, hey, daddy, why this thing is $3 and why this is $2? And, and then, okay, you give a chance to explain more, then you, you grab the opportunity. But definitely, yeah, teach your children uh, how to invest. No? Wow, I, I think your children is really lucky you know, to have a dad like you that's like so, so performing really well in the stock market. I wish I have a have a dad when I was growing up. So me too. I I, I wish when they are uh, listening to your podcast, uh, one day they really appreciate the kind of effort that you put in as well. So you know, take I understand that the work that we do, uh, researching is not um easy, and you know we come to a point to say that hey, you know you have worked extremely well, uh, extremely hard for your wealth for the past few years. So I just wonder, have you thought about one day, would you ever slow down in terms of your research uh, once you hit certain net worth? And do you actually recommend people slowing down so that they can enjoy life a bit more after they hit, hit certain net worth as well? Yeah, see, in Chinese, uh, there's a saying, you know, so we always like to work hard in the beginning and, you know, farm it really well so that you get to enjoy the seeds later, right? So I, I believe it if you're doing it, uh, you know, in your early 20s, your early 30s, and maybe slightly a little bit more if you're early 40s, you know. You need to have some time for yourself. So 
Nowadays, I try to uh, uh, limit to just a few companies. And I think sooner or later, when the portfolio grew to a bigger position, when uh, 10, 20% is, uh, you know, is a significant value, then uh, you, don't, you wouldn't need to look into all these small company that uh, is not proven anymore. So what, what you can do back now is that, let's say you have a nine digit or 10 digit portfolio, then you know, a, a, every 10% is a significant amount that you can utilize to do a big thing to the society. I mean, you can you know, donate a lot of money out of it. Yeah, it's, it, I think it's more of the uh, portfolio that you have. If you have uh, in a five-digit, six-digit range, then um, you tend to drive you more to, to, to grow your portfolio as fast as you can, right? So I still remember reading the uh, annual letter of Warren Buffett saying that uh, if you have anything less than a million dollars, you should be able to double it uh, every year. So that, that, that strikes me a lot when... Uh, you know, most of the fund managers are just doing like uh, 10%, 8%, 6%, and they're charging an arm and a leg, right? So to, to, to me, yeah, when, when your portfolio hit a, a certain mark, let's say maybe 10 million, every 20% is 2 million, right? So you, you want to really spend time to enjoy your life. If not, you will just be keep chasing and keep chasing, and then when does it end, right? So think... Yeah, it, it, it will be much easier as time goes by because uh, you should be able to just look at the company product and uh, management and you know, go through the LinkedIn and see the management history, history and look at the team that they have and you know, balance sheet. Then you should be able to grab fairly quickly whether this company worth your time to, to look into it further. Of course, you may miss something here and there, uh, especially that those new industry that you don't understand. But if it is a company like e-commerce, you know, fairly simple to understand. And the moment you look at the metrics, then you know that, okay, this company will do well. But you need your time to enjoy life. So I believe in uh, uh, go through the suffer, go through the challenges, and then uh, read as many books as you can in your early days of investing. And, uh, you know, when you reach a certain portfolio, uh, you should spend more time uh, guiding more people or teaching or sharing your knowledge so that uh, you inspire and help more people out of uh, the struggle that they have on a day-to-day basis. So that, that is what I think I'll be doing uh, you know, when, when the portfolio hit a certain level. Wow, what a way to end the podcast. So, Tekai, what you shared is really uh, quite inspiring. So we're coming to the end of the podcast right now. I just want to thank you because I, I know that you have prepared a lot of effort. I think you have shared your heart out, sharing your knowledge, your experience to our audience right now. So, uh, you know, let's really continue to search for more multi-baggers uh, this year and beyond. And thank you for coming on this episode. Thank you for having me, Gavin. Thank you. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Growth Investing Secrets Podcast. If you like this podcast, do leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Don't forget to tag me as well at Cabezor on Instagram. As always, say no to lousy companies and only buy into the best growth companies in the world. And I'll see you in the next episode.